Good evening, everybody. Welcome to this meeting. Um, our speaker this evening is Ron Croft from the University of Stirling Philosophy Department. I've known Ron, Ron of course, for many, many years, and um, I feel that he is in a, a particular way a colleague because St Andrews, my university, and Stirling have a joint, um, completely integrated PhD program. So Ron is going to talk about why is it disrespectful to violate rights. Thank you. Thanks very much, Sarah. And thanks for inviting me. The talk focuses on the relationship between rights, duties and respect. And I start with the thought, and I'll just say also I'm not following precisely the, um, the pre-circulated paper because there was just a bit too much in that. I've, I've, I've got a slightly cut version. So I start with the thought that violating a person's rights is disrespectful to that person. And this is because it's disrespectful to someone to violate duties owed to that person. And I call these directed duties. This is becoming the terminology for it. And they're the flip side for, of rights. The aim of the paper is to consider why directed duties and respect are linked and to highlight a puzzle about this linkage. A puzzle arising from the fact that many directed duties are justified independently of whether they do anything for those to whom they're owed. And I will end by trying to reconceive as undirected those duties whose direction generates my puzzle. So these are duties justified on grounds independent of those to whom they're owed. So, for example, I'm going to try and present a conception of property rights as not genuinely involving directed duties or rights. And it turns out to be very interesting to think about why a, a non-rights property system would fail. First, I want to say a little about the core notions. So we've got rights, directed duties and respect. This is section one. Directed duties include my duty owed to the Aristotelian Society to present this paper, or your duty owed to me not to assault me. And they contrast with undirected duties that are not owed to anyone. And these might include, some people think they include our duties of benevolence. They probably include, I'm pretty sure they include our duty to pursue the truth. The distinction between directed and undirected duties is important in at least three ways, which I've put in bullet points on your handout. So first, if one's owed a duty, then one is wronged by its violation. By contrast, violation of an undirected duty is wrong but does not wrong anyone in particular. If environmental legislation to protect rare birds doesn't give us duties owed to the birds, but simply undirected duties to treat them in certain ways, then the birds are, in Michael Thompson's memorable words, he, he says they're raw materials for wrongdoing, rather than wrongable beings with rights. Second aspect of directed duties is that someone who's wronged by a violation of a directed duty is other things being equal, owed an apology and compensation. And there's no such close conceptual link between apology or compensation and being harmed by a violation that did not wrong one. Thirdly, directed duties are at the heart of rights. Any violable right held by some being is constituted by an enforceable directed duty owed to that being. So, for example, my right not to be assaulted by, by Dudley, say, is constituted by the enforceable duty that he owes me not to assault me. And I can say more about this. I will do. But beforehand, the three implications, these three implications, the distinction between directed and undirected duties, they apply equally to the duties of critical morality and to those in positive law, social conventions, games. Now let me shift to respect. I'm not offering an analysis of respect in this paper. 
But I will say I'm mainly interested in a moral form of respect, respect as a response to what's called for by one's moral status. Given that one's status is defined centrally by what duties one's owed, there's a close relation between directed duties and respect. And the main driver in this paper is quite a simple intuition about the relationship between these things. And this is a th the intuition is what I've called thesis one there. So violation of a duty owed to a person, animal or group is disrespectful to that person, animal or group. And this thesis seems very plausible to me. If I owe a moral duty to you to turn up on time, then I show you disrespect if I unjustifiably fail to turn up. If the rules of the game place me under a duty to you not to push you out of your position on the pitch, then I show you disrespect as a footballer if I do this in a way that's unjustifiable under the rules. And I would add that, in my view, even in these trivial cases, I'd in some sense disrespect you as a person. You would feel justified in feel you would be justified in feeling affronted in a sort of personal way. Not just righteous indignation at the violation of values, but you'd feel justified in having a personal affront if I, if I did these things, if I violated directed duties to you. So related theses related to number one seem a little less plausible. I'm going to go through two, three, and four, and then say a little about them. So two. One can't disrespect a person, animal, or group without violating a duty owed to it. Three, one can't disrespect anything without violating a duty owed to it. Four, disrespect always involves violating a directed duty. Now, I'm very tempted by thesis two. But I, th I think we have to say it's incorrect, because disrespect sometimes seems permitted. And the example from the paper is British soldiers singing Hitler's Only Got One Ball in the 1940s, being disrespectful to Hitler but violating no duty to him. If you're persuaded by the exa example, then we can go for an amended version of two, which I've called two star, unimaginatively. Two star, one can't disrespect a person, animal or group without either violating or infringing a duty owed to it. And here I'm using infringe in the technical sense that Judith Thompson introduces. Um, Infringing a duty involves justifiably failing to fulfil it. So cases of infringement are cases where the duty's not vanished, it's still there, but the, bearer, the duty bearer is justified or correct in not doing what the duty requires. And I think potential counterexamples to two star are quite indecisive. Um, so I, fail, I suppose I fail to reply when you ask a silly question. This might well be disrespectful to you. It doesn't seem very wrong, but I, I'd say it does justifiably infringe a duty to you. And going back to the Hitler case, I'm tempted by the thought that even singing Hitler's only got one ball justifiably infringed a duty to Hitler. This is just how it feels to me. It's not like imprisoning a convicted criminal. Our duty not to imprison someone disappears when they're justly convicted and sentenced. So imprisonment it doesn't infringe any duty to anyone, and it doesn't show disrespect to the person infringed, if it's all done justifiably. By contrast, I suggest that Hitler's actions don't actually annul the duty not to sing the song, Instead, his actions make it right to infringe duties towards him rather than simply cancelling these duties. That is, Hitler's actions make it correct to show him disrespect. And that's what a commitment to two-star should lead us to think. It says all cases of disrespect for a person at least infringe a directed duty to that person. Now, in the written version of the paper, I say a little about theses three and four, and they seem suspect to me. My talk doesn't need them. I will occasionally rely on two-star, but my main concern takes one as its cue. 
And remember what one is. It's the thesis that violation of a duty owed to a person is always disrespectful to that person or animal or group. You get from violation of directed duty to respect. I think it's difficult to explain this link, number one, given what directed duties are, and that's my puzzle. So this takes us to section two on the handout. A theory of directed duties that explains the link with respect. Raz's very well-known interest theory of rights, I think this neatly explains thesis one, the link with respect, but I don't think it's right. Um, so here's a quotation from Raz on your handout. X has a right if and only if X can have rights, and other things being equal, an aspect of X's well-being, his interest, is a sufficient reason for holding some other persons to be under a duty. I think it's best to read this as saying that X has a right and is owed a correlative duty, if and only if X's interest is a sufficient reason for the existence of that duty, where we take reason not really to mean something about the directing of reasoning, but rather indicating a ground. So the thought is, for Raz's theory, I have a right, I'm owed a duty, if one of my interests is a, a ground, a sufficient ground in some sense for that duty. So in this sense, a sufficient reason for the existence of a duty is something sufficient to make it the case the duty exists. And there are quite a few possibilities for the precise meaning of sufficient here, the precise meaning of this idea of being sufficient to make it the case that a duty exists. On the handout, I've put two extremes which, which I'll mention. So the first extreme is the strong approach, what I call strong individualistic justification. So a duty, D, is strongly individualistically justified by some genuine feature of a person, X, if and only if that feature of X is of sufficient non-instrumental importance to constitute a powerful or rarely defeasible ground for D, and that ground is undefeated. Now, on one reading of Raz, one I actually once thought was correct, on one reading he says, look, a duty is owed to someone only if it's strongly individualistically justified, and it's owed to whoever's interests strongly individualistically justified. So the interests that make a duty owed to you have to be ones that are really hard to defeat, and they're hard to defeat as grounds for a duty doesn't mean the duty itself is hard to override. Remember, we're, we're grounding the existence of a duty, not yet talking about when it's justifiable to infringe it while it still exists. But there's strong individualistic justification. A much weaker approach uses the notion of what I've called weak individualistic justification. So a duty D is weakly individualistically justified by some genuine feature of a person X. If and only if, because of its non-instrumental importance, this feature of X has played some, however small, part in grounding D. So here's an example. Sometimes a utilitarian justification of a duty D owed to X will involve weak individualistic justification by some feature of X. So you know, suppose that X's happiness features on the in favor of D side of the utilitarian calculus. Then X's happiness has played a small part in justifying the duty, a very small part, because everyone else's happiness is also relevant too, but it's, it's there playing a teeny part. And plays a part in the justification of the duty. Now, Raz's account, I think it clearly shouldn't be read as claiming a duty is owed to whoever's interests weakly individualistically justified. I think there's just too, too weak a link between the interest and the duty to, to get the duty owed to that person. But it's not clear that Raz need be read as committed to the strong account either, and I think we should go for a disjunctive middle road where we say a duty is owed to whoever's interests are either a powerful ground for it in the strong sense outlined or at least something quite strong, like a ground that normally succeeds in justifying the duty, independently of the support of other factors, 
or one that has, in actual fact, succeeded in that way in grounding the duty independently of the support of other factors. Now, what I say next on the handouts, I'm just going to read out and talk about. So I think incorporating any one of these forms of strongish individualistic justification into one's account of a duty's direction explains the link between directedness and respect, explains thesis one. Because according to these accounts, violating a duty owed to X involves failing to respond to something about X, and for Raz that's an interest, something whose non-instrumental importance has played some significant role in grounding that duty. And this seems to me what's most attractive about Raz's theory. It, it, it gets us this notion that, of course, violating any duty you owe to someone is going to be disrespectful to them because you're, whenever you do it, you're ignoring something of significant duty-grounding importance about that person. So think of some examples. Think of a Razian account of duties to respect bodily integrity. So take, I don't know, my duty not to chop off your arm. It's owed to you and it's justified by the importance of your interest in your bodily integrity, and that's what makes it owed to you, according to Raz. On strong readings, this interest of yours plays a major, or perhaps even the only, role in grounding my duty. This interest in, your bodily, in my bodily integrity. So no wonder that violating the duty is disrespectful to you. I think I've got my you's and me's muddled up here, sorry. Um, I'm thinking of my duty not to chop off your arm, your interest on strong readings, plays a major or perhaps even the only role in grounding the duty. So no wonder that violating the duty is disrespectful to you. Such violation ignores the importance of this normatively powerful interest of yours. I think it's really important to notice that the concept of interest is incidental to this explanation of the link between directedness and respect. Individualistic justification is central. The duty is grounded by something about the person to whom it's owed. So violating it involves failing to respond to a duty-grounding aspect of that person. And alternative theories of rights and directed duties that appeal to something other than interests, so it might be needs, or freedom, or autonomy, or self-ownership, if you go for, for a lock-in approach. Any of these approaches can equally plausibly explain Thesis 1 if their chosen value plays an individualistic role in the grounding of directed duties. So what's the problem, then? We've got a nice theory that explains one. Well, the problem is the one that comes towards the bottom of the first page of the handout. So problems for us and alternative theories. The problem is just that some duties seem to be owed to people and correlate with rights, even though features of the people to whom they're owed play no part in their grounding. And I'm going to go through the three examples on the handout. So Raz himself mentions parents' rights to child benefit payments. These are justified by the interests of the child, plus perhaps the wider importance of instituting morally permissible public policies that have been legitimately adopted. The parents' own interests, or freedom, or autonomy, or whatever, none, none of these things need play any non-instrumental role in the justification of their right. Yet, if the appropriate system set up, parents are right holders, owed duties to be paid benefits by the state. And I think students' duties to hand in their essays on time are similar. I think they're owed to teachers. I think, we're, I think we actually have a right to timely hand-ins, and we're disrespected when this is violated. Not very much, but we are. Um, and this right, I think, is, is grounded in the interests of students and in considerations about the smooth running of universities and schools. It's not grounded in teachers' interests. And the one I find most persuasive, actually, is the, the final one, property rights. Think about things like, I don't know, my, my property rights over this pen. This is grounded in how a, a property system serves the common good, or my shirt or whatever. 
Your duty not to use the pen is owed to me even if I gain nothing from the pen, even if I'm the sort of self-sufficient person who gains nothing from having a property system in operation overall. There might be a few people like this. I still have a justified right over the pen, so long as I acquired it according to the rules. But it's not individualistically justified, even in the weakest sense. Well, Raz famously thinks he can accommodate these counterexamples. He suggests that a journalist's right to withhold the names of her sources can't be justified by how it serves the interests of the journalist. Instead, he thinks it's justified by the common good. But Raz maintains, as his theory requires, that the journalist's interests justify her right. But he adds they do this precisely because serving the journalist's interests serves the common good. And Frances Cam has criticised Raz's attempt to handle this sort of case. She says, here's his little quote, she says, look, if the satisfaction of the interests of others is the reason why the journalist gets a right to have his interests protected, his interest is not sufficient to give rise to the duty of non-interference with his speech. And that seems quite right to me. I mean, I think we should note, if it's the satisfaction and interest of others that's the key thing, then the, duty isn't, the interest of the journalist isn't sufficient in any of our listed sense. In any of those senses, not sufficient to give rise to the duty. The right here exists entirely independently of the interest of the journalist. So it's not individualistically justified. But it still seems to be there as a right for journalists. Now, despite this problem for Raz, I just want to point out that I do find Raz's account very persuasive for basic human rights. Think of your interest in not being tortured. This is of sufficient non-instrumental importance to constitute a powerful ground for my duty not to torture you, a ground sufficient to make this duty exist independently of whether it serves anyone other than you, I think. I think we've got very strong individualistic justification for those kind of duties. I think my duty to be... My, my being able to take part in public debate is similarly important, and your duties to let me take part, I think, are similarly individualistically grounded. That interest of mine is sufficiently important on its own to, to ground those duties, independently of whether it serves others. So my criticism of Raz is simply, simply that not all rights and directed duties fit this model. And note that the counterexamples that undermine Raz's theory don't actually discredit my thesis one about directed duties and respect. Because even violation of rights that are not individualistically justified seem disrespectful to the right holder. Painting graffiti on my barn, even a barn I own on another continent that does nothing for me, I think that disrespects me. I think I'd feel justifiably affronted if someone did that. Suppose my ownership of the barn is entirely determined by factors other than my interests or anything else of moral importance specifically about me. I simply happen to have ended up owning it as a result of the playing out of a system of property justified by the common good. Perhaps I inherited it. Well, the fact that graffiti on my barn disrespects me seems puzzling, I think. And uh, this is an instance of what I say at the bottom of page one of the handout. This is an instance of the central puzzle I want to focus on. Why is thesis one true, even of those rights and directed duties that cannot be accommodated by Raz's theory? Why is it disrespectful to you to violate duties owed to you when their justification is independent of anything non-instrumentally important about you? This takes us to the next section. So section three, a better theory of directed duties. I think we need to avoid incorporating individualistic justification into the definition of directed duty. We also need to avoid the extensional inadequacy of alternatives like the will and hybrid theories, which I'd be happy to discuss afterwards if you want to think about them. There's a range of theories of directed duty out there. I haven't been able to say why I think all of them don't work, but I think they all don't, apart from the one I'm about to mention. 
And I think they don't, because of my commitment to extensional adequacy, I take this to be a commitment to analysis that broadly reflects ordinary usage of the notion of directed duty. This commitment's based in confidence that everyday moral and wider normative thinking is our best, if fallible, guide to truth in these realms. Now, a non-Razian theory that fits ordinary usage well, I think, is Leif Fouinard's recent kind desire theory of rights and directed duties. Fouinard requires that directed duties serve what their recipient desires, given her role or kind, and he detaches the way a duty serves its recipient from that duty's justification. And I've given a little quotation on your handout from his theory. This is the formalisation of it. Um, Consider a system of norms S that refers to entities under descriptions that are kinds D and R. If and only if in circumstances C, a norm of S supports statements of a form 1, some D, quae D, has a duty to phi some R, quae R, where phi is a verb phrase specifying an action, such as follow the orders of, refrain from touching or shoot. 2. R's, quae R's want such duties to be fulfilled, and 3. Enforcement of this duty is appropriate, caterus paribus then the R has a claim right or is owed a duty in S that the D fulfil this duty in circumstances C. Now, OK, in a moment I'm going to go through some examples to try and explain how that all works out. Um, just before I do, let me note that in my view, enforceability, this thing in, 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 in Clause 3, I think this distinguishes those directed duties we call rights from those we do not. So if I help you cross the road, then you owe me a duty of gratitude, I think. But we don't call this a right. You know, I don't... I help you, I don't say, hey, I've got a right to your thanks. And this, I'd say, is because enforcement of your duty to thank me is morally inappropriate. But violating this duty is still disrespectful to me. It is disrespectful for you not to thank me. So my thesis one links respect with all directed duties, not just that subset that we're calling rights. But for this reason, I'm mostly going to ignore when ours clause three in what follows. I think clauses one and two give us directed duties in general, including those that we don't call rights. OK, so how does Wenard's theory work? Well, note initially that for Wenard, the kinds he mentions include social roles. And by tying duty's direction to kind or role wants, Wenard accommodates duties owed to beings whose well-being is not served by the duty. Let's consider a, a private's duty to salute the sergeant. We want to be able to say this duty is owed to the sergeant, even if the sergeant's a shy soul who'd rather not be saluted, even if... The ground for the duty to salute is the smooth running of the army and has nothing to do with the sergeant's own interests. Wenard's theory tells us that the duty to salute is still owed to the sergeant because, in clause one, the duty involves doing something to the sergeant, namely saluting him. And clause two, the duty is one that the sergeant, as a sergeant, wants fulfilled, and that's the key thought. So in his role, he wants it fulfilled. So even if, as a human being independent of his role, the sergeant would much rather pass unnoticed across the parade ground, quay sergeant, he wants to be saluted. And that makes the duty owed to him, this duty to salute. And we, maybe we can imagine other systems where, the, even though you have to salute when the sergeant walks past, it's conceived as owed to the monarch or something like that, because you don't think of the, the sergeant role as coming with that wish. Similarly, consider the child benefit case, the one I mentioned before. We want to be able to say that the state owes me a duty to make child benefit payments to me, even though my children's interests are the main ground for this duty. What does Wenard's analysis say? It says that even if one's an unusual parent whose well-being is not served by one's children's flourishing, and I, I do think there are such parents, 
Nonetheless, in your role as parent, you want whatever will help you fulfil your role. And this includes child benefit payments. And Renard tells us this follows from the nature of the role of parent. Hence, according to his theory, the state's duty is owed to one, even though one lacks interests grounding it. Now, in the printed version of the paper, I say a lot more about how to understand Renard's theory. I take it to be a theory that reveals a, reveals a definition of directedness that's implicit in ordinary usage. But the main point for the talk now is that by shifting to a focus on wants or interests that are tied to one's role or kind, and denying that these must be the justificatory ground of the duty, Renard is able to avoid the counterexamples for Raz's theory of directed duties. He's able to accommodate duties owed to beings whose interests and psychological desires aren't served by these duties, and duties that aren't grounded in any sense in the interests of those to whom they're owed. Right, we're on to section four. All right. So, if Renard's theory is correct, we're left with a puzzle about respect that I mentioned back at the end of section two when talking about graffiti on my barn. Let me explain. Renard rightly allows that your duty not to steal this pen is owed to me, and the state's duty to pay child benefits is owed to me, even though in neither case are these duties grounded on any feature of me, but rather on the common good or my children's interests. I have the role or kind wants which make the duty owed to me simply by happening to fall into a social or natural relation, parenthood or property system. I need not, though I often will, have pro-attitudes, interests, needs, freedom or autonomy at stake in relation to the directed duty. But, and this is my puzzle, why then does violating such duty disrespect me? Why is it disrespectful to me to violate a duty which is only owed to me because of what I want in my role, even though the genuine me who bears this role need have no concern about it, and even though the ground for the duty need not have anything to do with me? In the pre-circulated version, I discussed two attempts to back the puzzle away quickly, and in, in the talk I'm just going to look at one, the one that hinges on the fact that the truth about role wants often depends on our thinking. This isn't so for natural kind wants. So what cows want to quay cows might well be relevant to whether duties are owed to them, but it, it doesn't depend on what we think cows want. They just either do want these as cows or they don't. But when ours kind wants rightly include role wants, things you want in your role or given your role, and the constitution of some social roles is up to us. We can decide that station staff want to help passengers. We can imagine an alternative role where they don't lack, where they don't have that desire, even in their role. We can decide whether sergeants, quay sergeants, want to be saluted. As I said, we can imagine a system where we think, you've got to salute when this person goes by, but it's, uh, it's owed to the, the monarch, and the, we don't think of the sergeant as wanting it in his role. We can decide whether those named on deeds concerning a bit of land and who have control over others' trespassery duties concerning that land, should be conceived as wanting, given this role, that the relevant trespassery duties be fulfilled. Wernard's theory tells us these decisions determine whether the relevant duties are directed and who they're directed to. So if we decide that those who control duties to keep off a bit of land must, given this role, want such duties fulfilled, then we're deciding that such controllers are owners to whom the duties are owed. This decision to make certain duties directed by conceiving or inventing certain roles, looks to be up to us. And furthermore, there seems nothing wrong in inventing social roles if it be valuable for them to exist. And it does seem valuable for some of the roles I've discussed to exist. For example, it's useful for all sorts of reasons to have a system of property rights in operation. Well, and this is on the handout, given the constructability of roles, we should expect that if it's valuable for us to think that certain social practice-based duties are directed, and they are directed, 
or they become so once we think in the relevant role-creating way. And we back my puzzle away by saying, look, we don't need to link duties direction to anything intrinsically morally important about their recipients. We can just construct duties and roles that will generate directedness wherever this would be useful, for whatever end. Now, what I've just said actually seems correct to me, but I don't think it properly dispels my puzzle about respect. The problem, as ever, lies with non-individualistically justified rights and duties. Even if, as the attempt to bat the puzzle away maintains, even if roles with their attendant wants and hence directedness can be constructed whenever doing so is socially useful, I think it's nonetheless compelling to think that disrespecting a being must involve failure to respond to something of non-instrumental importance that's genuinely about that being, not about the common good or something else. So if a certain system of directed duties, like a property system, if it's valuable on common good grounds, and if these non-individualistic grounds are sufficient to generate the type of roles that make the system's duties genuinely directed, we're still left with the question why violating such a duty to you is disrespectful to you. It is, after all, a duty that's only owed to you because of considerations that are not to do with you, it's to do with the usefulness of having a system of roles under which you happen to, to be the owner. So to put, to put this another way, I mean, once we grasp Wenar's picture of the importance of roles, we should expect to see morally justified directedness all over the place, wherever it would be useful. But this doesn't square with my original thesis one, when coupled with my sense that disrespect for someone should involve failure to respond to something that's fundamentally about that person. So this takes us to section five. I'm doing... When am I meant to finish on that clock? I can't remember at all. I think I've got quite a... 20 past. 20 past. Yeah, no, we're doing fine then. That's okay. Good. So so that's the worry, really. Um, Renard's theory seems right extensionally. It it captures our usage. It also suggests it's very easy to find directedness all over the place. Um, But if that's the case, we, we... My sense is respect that kind of serious notion of disrespect that justifies feeling affronted. I don't think we can find that all over the place so easily. I'm not sure you get the right justification for it, um, for justified affront, simply through through the kind of Wenar mechanism, simply through thinking, well, it'd be useful to have social roles here. And what I want to do now in section five is to discuss five attempts to explain why, despite the failure of Raz's theory and the success of Wenar's, why nonetheless thesis one is correct, why violation of a duty owed to some being is always disrespectful to that being. So I'm going to go through these five attempts and then say a little more about it. None of the attempts quite work. No one gets close. So start with some that I don't think do get close. First, perhaps a person is in a sense... Well, actually, this one does, sorry, as well. The ones that don't, I think, are two and three and possibly four. But one, perhaps a person is in a sense no more than their roles and kinds. So, of course, it disrespects them to violate a duty they want fulfilled given their role or kind. Well, in the pre-circulated version, I said, look, I doubt this approach is main claim. I asserted there my well-being and desires are central to who I am. They need not coincide with my role and kind-based wants. But I have to say, on second thoughts, I'm, I'm actually not sure about this. Um, maybe my well-being and desires are shaped either by my kind or when they deviate from kind-based wants, as in the case of, say, ascetic desires, desires to fast or something. I think this is normally driven by my role. Nonetheless, I think the key puzzling cases, the ones that drive my puzzle, are those where a duty's direction is determined by what its recipient wants given her role. It's the role ones that are puzzling. 
and my roles do seem at least sometimes quite sharply independent of who I am. I say this on the handout in the next bit. The roles driving our problem are conferred on a person independently of anything of moral significance about them in particular, but rather because so doing serves other values. It seems odd to say that a person can be essentially constituted by desires created by these roles, given the roles ground in goods external to the person. Such grounding means a person can bear such roles without wanting to, without having their desires or well-being or freedom tied up with such roles. But if a person is not their roles, at least when these are non-individualistically justified, then the approach under consideration gives us no explanation for thesis one, for the thesis that violating a duty to someone always disrespects that person. This is because we've got no explanation for why the role-based desires that make a duty owed to the person are essentially part of or tied to that person, because they've not been grounded in anything to do with that person. And it just seems to me that they needn't be tied to that person. I think my ownership of the distant barn, the one that's been graffitied, need not be tied up with what is essentially me, not linked to my well-being or desires. But the graffiti still disrespects me, even though it's not tied up to anything that any wishes I have in my head or anything that's, that's particularly good for me. The graffiti still disrespects me, I think. OK, second approach. A second approach claims it disrespectful to violate directed duties however they're justified because recipients legitimately expect them fulfilled. But as I put it on the handout, I mean, in nasty situations, by which I mean situations in which lots of duties are being violated, people must, might just have no expectation that moral duties owed to them will be fulfilled, and we then have no explanation for thesis one, for the idea that violating a duty to someone always disrespects that person. Because you wouldn't get the expectations set up as are meant to explain why it's disrespectful to violate duties. The approach, I think, also struggles with two star. This is the um, legitimate expectations approach. Two stars that claim that disrespect to a person always involves infringing a duty to them. So it says, look, to disrespect anyone at all, you've got to infringe a duty. I think people can form legitimate expectations regarding undirected duties regarding, and regarding duties owed to others. I can legitimately expect my neighbour to care for his elderly parents independently of whether his duty is owed to me as well as them. So legitimate expectations just don't track directedness. I don't think that one works. The third approach appeals to rights demandability, and I've heard this one quite a lot recently. On this view, the reason why violating a duty to someone disrespects that person is because it involves failing to do something that that person can demand. Look, you're failing to do something I can demand if you take my, put graffiti on my property or, or whatever. I can, I can demand you don't do it. However, I think we've still got problems with two-star to begin with. I mean, I can permissibly demand that you respect someone else's rights, the rights of which this is true may be limited. I can't permissibly demand that my neighbour provide the full level of care he owes his parents. But I think I can permissibly demand that he provide them with a minimal level. At least that seems plausible to me. But I don't hold any right that he provide this minimal level of care for his parents. I just think being permitted to demand fulfilment of a duty isn't distinctive of those to whom the duty is owed. So even if the approach could explain thesis one, it wouldn't also explain two star. Like the earlier legitimate expectation approach, the demandability approach would implausibly imply that when my neighbour doesn't care for his parents, he disrespects me as well as them. But in addition, the demandability approach also faces problems with explaining thesis one. So in my view, someone who holds a right that correlates with a directed duty can, other things being equal, permissibly demand its fulfilment. This demandability, along with the enforceability in Winars Clause 3, I think these are important aspects of the character of rights. Rights are demandable and enforceable, many of them, all of the ones that are claim rights. 
But not every directed duty is necessarily demandable by its recipients. Those that do not correlate with rights are not. Let's go back to your duty to thank me for helping you cross the road. I've got no right to this, because not only is it not enforceable, but also I can't permissibly demand it. It's morally impermissible, and also I'd say, in fact, perhaps because it's intrinsically counterproductive for me to say, hey, you, thank me, if I say, hey, you, thank me, try and demand it. It's just not going to work, and it's, it's morally impermissible as well. I think you're doing something morally wrong and silly. Um, it's still disrespectful, though, for you not to thank me, um, even though I can't demand, hey, thank me. Disrespect goes along with directed duty, not with demandability. So appeal to demandability can't explain why a violation of every directed duty, including those that don't fit with rights, where every directed duty disrespects the person to whom it's owed. Okay. So that's section five, number three, and we're getting towards the bottom of page two of the handout. Um, section five, number four, um, a fourth approach. I just wanted to mention this. It questions my account of respect. I've taken an action to be disrespectful of a being because it fails to respond to the importance of some feature of that being. The action just doesn't respond to something about them. A Kantian might say, look, hey, this is just much too teleological here. A Kantian might say, I can answer your puzzle by just stepping outside that teleological approach. Well, I can't, I can't do justice to the options here, but I'm going to record my view that a broadly teleological account of disrespect in which features of the being who's disrespected play an important role in the explanation of why a given case involves disrespect to that being. This just strikes me as very compelling. And, as I say on the handout, Kantian alternatives, which explain why an action manifests disrespect by focusing on, say, the universalizability of the maximum on which the agent acts, or on the character of the agent as self-governing. I just think these seem to give the subject of disrespect, the person being disrespected, insufficient place in the explanation of why this is disrespect. Too much focuses on the maxim or the agent, not, not on the subject. And for these reasons, I'm, I'm just not going to perceive a Kantian solution to the puzzle about Thesis 1. Uh, I do recognise this is too schematic and question-begging to persuade Kantians. And in particular, I think Kantian approaches grounded on the importance of acting on principles others can endorse or the importance of giving reasons to others. These do seem to put the person who's disrespected centrally into the picture. So I think there are ways Kantians could try and address my worries. Nonetheless, I think we can still make a, a fairly confident dismissal of the Kantian approach, one that becomes more confident if we could also endorse two-star, this idea that actually the only way to disrespect someone is to infringe a duty to them. Because Kantian accounts struggle to explain why violating duties owed to you is disrespectful of you, while violating undirected duties or duties owed to others is not. Appeal to, say, the distinction between acting on maxims contradictory in conception and those contradictory in will, that won't help, I think. Given that both forms of action can affect others significantly, why should we say that only one of the types of contradiction here necessarily manifests disrespect to the people affected? Now think about Kant's examples here of the contradiction in conception will cases. You've got the victim of, and the examples from the groundwork, you've got the victim of false promising, they're affected by an action whose universalised maxim is contradictory in conception. You've got the people whose needs are ignored, these have been affected by the person who acts on a universalised maxim that's contradictory in will. Both types of victim are affected severely. Why see one type of contradiction-driven effect as somehow violating a directed duty? One that generates disrespect, while the other does not. So I'm just unsure, but sorry, do I have a question there? No, okay. Similarly, I think a Kantian approach based on the idea that respecting someone involves acting on reasons that person can share. You find this in 
in Thomas Hill's work, um, or principles they can endorse. I think there's struggles with two-star, because I think reasons or principles that we can share or endorse, they're going to reject violation of any duty, whether it's directed or undirected. They don't make that distinction between directed and undirected duty. So I'm going to, with a slightly heavy heart, set Kantian approaches aside, even though it's been a, a quick zoom through them. Um, now, moving to my final verse thing in section five, which is towards the top of page three of the handout, um, I want us to think about a piecemeal approach to the puzzle. This is inspired partly by an article by Simon Kabulia May in Ethics, a very recent article. He isn't there driven by my concerns about respect, but he's driven by a related concern. He wants to show that every right must be, in, in some sense, for the sake of its holder. And he suggests something like this piecemeal approach. In my version, I'm just switching it to my terms, in my version, the piecemeal approach looks at the range of directed duties and finds for different classes different accounts of why their violation disrespects those to whom they're owed. The thought is we can somehow get thesis one to come out true by mopping up different classes of directed duties with different accounts of why thesis, true, thesis one is true for them. So the first class we should mention are those directed duties that fit Raz's account. I've argued that Raz's account which accommodates thesis one, is correct for basic human rights. It's also correct for directed duties that have a similarly basic character but aren't rights because they're unenforceable. I think duties of fidelity to your partner, I think that's like this. I think these are grounded in your partner's interest independently of whether that serves anyone else. Those duties are just there if you've got the right kind of relationship. For all such duties, I think we can appeal to their individualistic grounding structure to explain why violating them disrespects those to whom they're owed. So there, we've mopped up a ton there, all of Raz's ones. But we've still got the ones that don't fit Raz to deal with. Well, let's try mopping up a second type then of directed duty for which an explanation of one does seem available. These are duties owed to someone to allow that person to do their duty. Think about Joe's duty not to obstruct police officer Susan when she's apprehending a suspect. Well, ours theory makes this directed because police officers, quay police officers, want to apprehend suspects. <coughs> For such cases, we have a good explanation of Thesis 1's link between directed duties and respect. We say, well, look, violating a duty to allow Susan to do her morally justified duty, this offends against Susan's standing interest in behaving morally. Stopping Susan doing a moral duty is disrespectful of her, whatever the ground for this moral duty is, I think. I just want to say a little bit more about this, because I, I think it's quite an appealing approach, actually. I think whatever one's morally justified duties are, one's... One's got kind or role-based desires to fulfil them. As a human, I want to do my duty by other humans. As a police officer, I want to perform my duties of office. So if someone P has a duty to let someone else Q perform their duty, Q will, in the relevant role or kind-based way, want to be allowed to do this. Thus, P's duty will be directed to Q according to Menard's theory. And what the suggestion under consideration wants to add is that at least for morally justified duties, people have a standing interest in a role-independent sense, a sort of it's genuinely good for them, in being able to fulfil their morally justified duties, an interest whose violation is disrespectful of people. It just looks disrespectful to you to stop you doing your morally justified duty. So this all seems to work. Duties to let people do their morally justified duties are directed and their violation is disrespectful. But what's annoying is this will still only accommodate a few cases. Many directed duties don't specifically protect their recipients doing their moral duty. Think about roles that aren't defined by duties of office. There's no special duty that one always bears if one's an owner or a promisee. Okay, other people have duties, but being an owner doesn't mean you've got any particular duty. These sorts of cases, therefore, can't be made to fit under the approach under consideration. 
because ownership doesn't always protect you doing your morally justified duty. And just as an aside, I mean, suppose John Locke was right and property rights were there to enable us to do our God-given duty. Matters would be different there. We could fit property into this. But as it stands, we just can't fit property into this picture. So a bold third move, and I'll just say I'll probably be another maybe five, ten minutes. Is that okay, Sarah? I think that's right, isn't it? A bold third move that would mop up property and promising is to incorporate all directed duties that the will theory of rights endorses by maintaining that it's disrespectful to a given being to violate any duty over which that being has powers of waiver or enforcement. Now, this approach I'm suggesting here is not to endorse the will theory as an account of directedness. I've not mentioned the will theory before. Just to, I mean, the will theory of directedness says, says look, a duty, it's very simple. It says a duty is owed to whoever has powers to waive or enforce that duty. If you can waive or enforce the duty, then the duty is owed to you. That's the will theory. The different view I'm considering here, it says let's keep with Wenar's theory of directedness, but let's add that violation of a duty that is directed under Wenar's account and over which the recipient also has powers of waiver or enforcement. This disrespects its recipient precisely because it violates something over which the recipient has these powers. Is this plausible? Can we kind of take all the, all the duties that someone has powers of waiver or enforcement over and say, look, they disrespect the person because of that person had those powers. Violating, sorry, violating the duty disrespects the person because they had those powers. Well, look, maybe if you do have a power to waive a duty, then violating that duty when it's not been waived does in some sense involve failure to respect your will. The duty's continued existence is in some sense embodies your will. But I do think it's only in some sense. I mean, think about it. You might have just failed to waive the duty through forgetfulness. You might not care about the duty, just, just happened not to have waived it. If your power over the duty or its existence is also justified independently of your own interests or your own will, then the sense in which violating the duty disrespects you is, I think, really quite loose here. Think about this example from the paper. I think parents have got powers of waiver or enforcement over their children's duties to do homework. But do we want? To, but I actually, do, I think it's just bad parenting to say that when children fail to do the work, they're thereby disrespecting their parents. This case doesn't involve a directed duty in Renard's sense, because the children's duty is not to do something to parents, so children don't owe it to their parents to do the duty anyway, according to Renard's theory. But the, the case does meet the conditions for disrespect, in the sense that we should expect if the will theory account were correct, which I don't think it is. Because here you've got children not fulfilling a duty over which their parents have power. And yet, to me, it just doesn't look like a real case of directed disrespect to parents. And I'm therefore doubtful of the will theory move here. I don't think we can say that violating a duty over which someone has powers always disrespects the being with the powers. I think you can find other examples too. I mean, I think we often think of, think of sort of third-party regulators. And there are various legal duties over which particular bodies will be regulators who can choose whether to enforce them or not to waive them. Do we really want to say that whenever you don't fulfil those duties, you're disrespecting the regulator? I'm, I'm not sure about that. It seems pretty doubtful to me. Okay. We've finished section five, we've got a tiny section six, and then a longer section seven. Section six, a unifying meta-right. I want us to stop this piecemeal approach. I think we need to stop seeking partial accounts to feed it, because the piecemeal approach is problematic precisely because of its piecemeal nature. While some violations of directed duty involve aspects of disrespect, like unequal treatment that other violations lack, there is still a constant form of disrespect. There's a disrespect of wronging someone that accompanies any violation of directed duty. And the piecemeal approach can't explain this. What can is what I put in your handout. The claim that every morally justified duty a person happens to be owed is protected by a meta-duty to respect that duty. 
and this meta-duty is individualistically justified. So if we ignore complications about enforceability, we can say each person holds an individualistically justified right to respect for whatever morally justified rights they hold, however the latter are justified. Now, this is the idea of a duty to fulfil a duty or a right to respect a right, right to respect for a right. It might sound odd, but I don't think it really is. I mean, we do it all the time. Think about promising that you're going to look up. I promise you I'll look after my children. I've already got a duty to look after my children, and I promise I'll do it. You swear an oath to do your duty in battle for your country. The thesis here is that for any justified, directed duty that's directed to you, your interest in its being respected, because it's a justified duty owed to you, is sufficient on its own to ground a meta-level directed duty to respect this duty. Now this, if it's correct, gets us a link between violation of any justified duty owed to someone and disrespect for that being. I think it also captures the phenomenology of rights and duty violation. Your graffiti feels like an affront to me because if my right over the barn is morally justified, then even though its justification is independent of my interests, I have an important interest in respect for whatever morally justified rights I happen to hold, whatever they are. But although this is correct, I think it just raises more questions than it really answers. First, I mean, what exactly is the interest in having one's morally justified rights respected? Is this an interest in recognition? Is it something analogous to the interest in doing one's moral duty, but seen from a kind of recipient perspective? And it's really not clear to me how we should characterise this interest that grounds the individualistically justified meta-rights. Secondly, and I think more importantly, I mean, if we accept that the grounds for a duty to me, say your duty not to use my garden gnomes, if we accept that these, the grounds for these, this duty you have to me, they've got nothing to do with me, why are such duties included within the moral status protected by my individualistically justified meta-right? And this is my puzzle about thesis one, just recast. Why are all duties owed to me protected by individualistically justified meta-level duties? Why do I have a significant interest at stake in fulfilment of duties not justified by my interests? Well, let's put this another way. Um, my meta-level right demands respect for my moral status as defined by the duties owed to me. But why are duties that are owed to me but which are grounded in factors independent of me still part of my moral status? Why are they protected by the special meta-right? So that's the end of little section six, and we're on to section seven. So here we go. So I was quite tempted by a radical conclusion. I think this is tempting, particularly if we note, and this is going against what I said in section four when I discussed the value of creating roles that make duties directed. We should note it's actually unclear that directedness is really very helpful or necessary to serve the common good or education or other non-individualistic ends that ground practice-based rights like property, or the rights of scientific researchers, or teachers' rights to time the essay submission. It's just not clear we really need directedness to get the benefits of these things. Instead, it looks as though we could get the relevant benefits from the existence of the relevant duties, even if they weren't directed. So all we need are duties to let scientific researchers pursue their research, even when this threatens cherished religious beliefs, say, or students' duties to hand in essays on time, or even the duties we all bear to let Sarah decide on what happens to the field Greenacre. It's really not clear that any of these duties need to be directed in order to deliver the benefits that they deliver. I'm going to say more to support this in a moment, but we should note now that if this is correct, then it opens up the possibility I mentioned on the handout under Section 7, possibility of revising our practices, of purging them of directedness whenever they conflict with Thesis 1, without thereby losing anything of moral importance. In a sense, what I'm going to suggest here is that we try revising our practices 
to make them fit Raz's or some similarly individualistic account of directedness rather than rejecting Raz because he doesn't fit our practices. So, no, let's make our practices fit. For property, the radical proposal on the handout would be to adopt a system in which trespassery duties persist as at present and control over these duties so Hofeldian powers to allow others to use a field is distributed exactly as at present, including powers to alter such control by giving it away, etc. So I'm saying just keep all the same duties and all the same powers, all the same immunities, all the same other Hofeldian elements, for those who know this. But those with the control, those named on the relevant legal deeds, are not conceived as wanting in their role as possessors of such control and bearers of such deeds that the trespassery duties be fulfilled. Of course, most people in such roles will actually want fulfilment. But qua person named on the deeds to X, with control over the duties not to trespass on X, I will not, within this new system, want the duties fulfilled. My role-based relationship to their fulfilment will be the same as that of a third party, at least when it comes to my role-based wants. Well, Bernard's account tells us that trespassing an X will therefore not wrong me under this system. It'll just be a case of undirected wrongdoing. I think he's right about that. I want to say a bit about this system. In this system, people can use what they control to pursue their own interests within the constraints of the trespassery norms. Such a system would thus supply the benefits of a free market, things like distributing goods efficiently despite humans' non-altruistic motivations, despite our epistemic limitations. I think you get all the benefits that Hayek, Hume and Smith highlight. But it's a free market property system without property rights. We deny that violations of Whiteacre specifically disrespect me with my deeds to Whiteacre. Such violations are wrongdoings, offending against the whole system and its common good justification, without specifically disrespecting me, even though I'm the one who's got all the control over Whiteacre. Now, adopting such systems, thereby rejecting non-individualistically justified rights as not genuine rights, this allows us to endorse Thesis 1, without requiring us to explain why violating your rights disrespects you, even when these rights are not morally grounded in anything to do with you. So the non-rights property system sort of wears its moral grounds on its face, as it were, or at least it avoids the misleading appearance of individualistic grounds. And we could try the same for, for other non-individualistically justified systems, like students' students' duties to hand essays in. Just don't think that as teachers we want them fulfilled. They still have the duties, we've still got the control over them, these sorts of things, and we can, we can just stop thinking of them as directed duties. Now the trouble is, particularly with this property one, that a non-rights property system is very unlikely to persist. I've been calling bearers of relevant deeds within the non-rights property system controllers of goods. Let's just think of them like as under that heading. I think there's going to be pressure to conceive control as ownership, and hence as involving the role wants that make trespassory duties correlate with rights. I'm nearly there. The pressure differs from that on attempted systems of undirected promising or undirected duties of natural law. Now let's think about these things. Undirected promissory duties would be those that a person bears because they've issued a promise to an addressee and the addressee's not waived it, but they would not be conceived as owed to the addressee. By undirected duties of natural law, I mean things like the notion of a duty not to torture or dismember you that's not owed to you. <laughs> For promissory duties and duties not to torture, the interests or other fundamental features of the promisee or torturee, I think these play a major role in grounding these duties. I think these duties are therefore individualistically justified. And this, I believe, just makes it impossible not to see them as owed to that individual. 
It's impossible not to see individualistically justified duties as accompanied by role-based desires that make them fit Winnar's theory, desires on the part of the people whose interests ground the duty. If your duty not to torture me is fundamentally grounded in my interests, it's impossible not to see me as wanting qua personal or qua torturee or whatever the relevant role is in natural law, just wanting that I not be tortured. This is because the grounding point or purpose of the duty is my interests. Now, the pressure to conceive control over external goods as involving rights, in particular rights of ownership, is interestingly weaker. My possession of non-rights control of Whiteacre is not justified individualistically by my interests. But there's still some pressure to conceive my controllership as a claim right and to conceive me as having role-based wants which make the relevant duties owed to me. And this pressure springs from the fact that most controllers of a given field or whatever will benefit from others fulfilling their duties not to trespass on that field. So even though trespassers' duties are justified by the common good, violating them typically sets back the relevant controller's interests. The thought is that once you've got that kind of control, you're likely to want to use the thing you've got control over. It'll help you do this if you don't trespass on it. If, sorry, if others don't trespass on it. And this, I think, makes it hard to resist seeing a controller role as involving a desire, qua controller, that the relevant trespassery duties be fulfilled. Once we get this, Bernard's theory tells us that we've got ownership and rights. This kind of slide is resistible. I think sometimes we can deny that beings in a role will, qua role bearers, want something that most beings in the role happen actually to want. Think about cinema ushers. I think most of them, perhaps most of them, do want to watch the film if you're an usher in a cinema. I don't know, let's suppose they do. It doesn't follow that they want this quay usher. We can resist this in the usher case because the role is defined by a duty of office to show cinema goers to their seats. But non rights controllership is not like this. This strange notion of being a controller is defined by powers and one's name's appearance on a deed. Unlike the concept usher, there's little to stabilise people's use of this concept controller in a way that would prevent it gaining the role desires that will convert it to the concept of owner. That's my radical conclusion is just unavailable. We can't, I think, in any persistent over time way, get directedness out of our property system. I think it's, it's always going to end up with us thinking of these duties as directed. And maybe this should just reconcile us to the status quo in which property and other non-individualistically justified systems of duties involve rights. And maybe generalising for property, we can conjecture that all violations of directed duty place the recipient in a position that would typically be a setback. And I just want to... I see I'm, I think we started late, so I th- am I OK? <laughs> I hope we did. I think we started at 22, so yeah. I'm sorry. I've been more than the 50 minutes, but um, I've got a tiny bit left, so I'll be maybe three minutes. I've used one of them up. OK. So let, one option is to say, look, we've got the, let's just accept the status quo then. Um, and maybe we should notice that in the property case, look, it, it typically sets back people's interest to violate property. Perhaps that's enough to kind of answer this puzzle. Um, this is actually to use Matthew Kramer's theory of rights, which I haven't mentioned before. I think it's helpful to mention him at this final stage. I mean, Kramer says, look, a duty is owed to any human, animal or group whose situation would, by the duty's fulfilment, necessarily be affected in a way that's typically beneficial for a being of the relevant type, a human, animal or group. Well... Whether we accept Kramer or not, I mean, maybe we just say, look, this is actually normally true of, of rights. That they are, well, I think we'd have to say rights and directed duties, if you violate them, you're always doing something which is typically a setback for a human or an animal or a group. You're always doing something which is typically a setback. Not for everyone, but for typically it is. And we could try and save thesis one by saying, look, placing someone in that kind of position, a position that's typically a setback, is always disrespectful to that being. But I just end by saying why this doesn't work, and then, um, then I've got a tiny little concluding section. First, 
I just don't think we can generalise from the case of property in this way. I think some morally justified directed duties are such that violation is not typically a setback to their recipients. So if I obstruct my bin each week so the council's waste collectors have to leave it, I think I'd make their life a bit easier. But I still owe them a duty to let them do their job. When our theory says this is because quite waste collectors, they want to collect bins. This is true even though people occupying the role don't typically benefit from being able to collect more bins. But, you know, if, if you're not persuaded by that and you think it is true that violation of any directed duty is typically a setback to the person to whom it's owed, I think we still face my puzzle about Thesis 1. Because even if property, say, typically serves its holders' interests, such rights are still justified by the common good. Why, then, does violating them disrespect the holder whose interests are at stake, we're now admitting, but are not their ground? Many other setbacks to a being's interests don't count as disrespect to that being. Now, think about familiar examples, out-competing someone in the market, writing a fair but nasty book review of them. Um, you're setting back people's interests. I don't think it's disrespectful. So the fact that fulfilling duties owed to someone typically serves that being's interests and that violations are typically a setback, this can't explain thesis one. It can't explain why such violations are invariably disrespectful of the person to whom the duty was owed. So I think neither the radical conclusion nor the status quo is sustainable. And this takes us to the final section. An alternative radical conclusion is just to say, well, forget thesis one then. Forget this link between directed duties and respect. Let's reserve the notion of disrespect for violation of rights and directed duties that are individualistically justified, that fit Raz's theory. So violating my property rights or rights to child benefit payments, let's say that just isn't disrespectful to me. Well, I'll be quick with this one. I, I just think this jars. I think it jars both with the intuitions that drive thesis one and with the kind of meta-right I sketched in section six. I think it's very hard to start thinking that when you violate my property rights, you're not being disrespectful to me. So conclusion, which is on the handout. The option for which I've not found good explanation is the non-radical one of maintaining thesis one, which says that violation of any directed duty disrespects the being to whom it's owed, while also keeping current practices of directedness with their non-individualistic groundings and keeping Renard's plausible account of directedness. And I end by noting that each of these commitments chimes with ordinary usage, but I've not resolved the tension between them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah.